Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, bureau chief of WFIU and WTIU. And today we're going to talk about the uh, Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission Supreme Court decision. It's hard to believe it's been two years ago since that decision. Uh, there's a local group in Bloomington, actually a national group and a lo- with a local affiliate uh, that is trying to reverse that Citizens United decision. We have three guests with us in the studio. One is a member of that local group. Um, Rob Deppert is here. He's a member of that local group. Benjamin Robinson is here. He's a member of the Occupy Bloomington, or he's an Occupy Bloomington activist, I should say. And Kyle Langvart is here. He's a lecturer in the business law and business law and ethics at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at uh, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website for a live chat. You may have heard uh, this topic discussed on uh, Fresh Air yesterday with Terry Gross. Terry Gross had an interview yesterday with Jim Bopp from Terre Haute. We have some clips from Jim Bopp, who was the uh, attorney that filed the lawsuit, actually, uh, for Citizens United. So we have some clips from him that we'll play at some point during the program as well. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, I'm going to turn to Kyle first. Can you sort of give us a a sense of Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission, just as a primer? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, I think the the first thing is kind of to clarify what Citizens United is not. I think this case is almost sort of universally um, misunderstood. And there are a couple of slogans that we keep hearing over and over and over again. And and, and they're they're fine slogans. I think they're a little beside the point. But these are – uh, that corporations are not people and money is not speech. And so it's understood that Citizens United is the case that said corporations are people and that uh, money um, is speech. Well, that's not quite true. This doctrine of corporate personhood that for for the purpose of interpreting statutes, a, the word person will be taken to mean uh, or to include corporations is, is an old one. It goes back over a century. Um, and the, the Supreme Court didn't exactly say that money uh, was speech in any literal sense. That would be completely ridiculous. But they, they, uh, they did acknowledge, as earlier courts have acknowledged, and I think reasonably, that, uh, that money facilitates speech and that limitations on spending can be limitations on, um, on expressive uh, power. So what Citizens United is actually about is this. There's an old case called Buckley versus Vallejo, 1976. Um, and the basic holding was that you have two types of uh, expenditures in politics. You have what are called direct contributions to campaigns. This is where you're paying the candidate's campaign directly. And then you have independent expenditures. An independent expenditure is where you decide to make an ad for yourself that uh, refers to the campaign or refers to an issue involved in the campaign or or whatever it is. And the court said that if our, if our primary concern is corruption and preventing corruption, then we have much better reasons to restrict these direct campaign donations than we do to restrict independent expenditures. With direct campaign expenditures – or with, with direct campaign donations, you have coordination with the candidate and you have a, a risk of quid pro quo corruption. With independent expenditures, if they're truly uncoordinated – Uh, you don't have that same risk. (coughs) At the same time, perhaps the speech value of these independent expenditures, these ads that I pay for by myself to spread a message, have more kind of inherent speech value than the direct donations. Well, after Buckley versus Vallejo, you have a number of cases that that, uh, begin observing another interest. 
uh, besides preventing corruption in, uh, in sort of leveling the playing field, making sure that, that large agglomerations of wealth aren't used to, uh, to drown out others. And, and uh, you know, where's the money? Well, the money is in, uh, is in the general treasuries of corporations. And so you have, uh, you have cases that, that place new restrictions on, on the expenditures of funds from general treasuries and corporations, and you get this kind of Byzantine legal structure. Well, what Citizens United does is it essentially clears away a lot of what happened after Buckley versus Vallejo and goes back to the pure Buckley versus Vallejo decision. They say, okay, you can still regulate direct campaign expenditures, but when we said before that you couldn't regulate the independent expenditures, we really meant it. So if you're making a truly independent, uncoordinated expenditure of funds on an ad that concerns a campaign, you, you, know, you have absolute clearance to do that. Congress can't do anything about it except uh, ask you to uh, disclose your sources. I'll go ahead. And, and then there's one more case after that, and I won't talk much about this one, but this case is called Speak Now. And this is the case that invents the super PAC. They make the kind of uh, logical connection that, well, if you can spend all this money on, um, on your own independent expenditures, then it follows that you should, uh, that you should be able to give that money to a, a super PAC, which will then go and spend the money on independent expenditures, mm-hmm. which I think is a logical connection. I just wanted you to connect this with McCain-Feingold. Because that was the that was a congressional uh, attempt to <clears throat> regulate some of this. Yeah. So, well, I mean, McCain Feingold. There's a lot going on there, but the specific provision uh, uh, concerned in Citizens United involved uh, election related expenditures that that expressly uh, that expressly advocated for or against a candidate that were made within 60 days of an election. McCain Feingold placed limits on that. Uh, Citizens United swept it away. But by implication, they swept away basically all of the other restrictions that you might place on independent expenditures. Okay. Well, let's give our other two panelists an opportunity to respond to some of what you've said. Um, Rob Deppert, a member of Bloomington's Move to Amend group. Rob, what's your group all about? Move to Amend has formed uh, from some of the leadership that have been around Bloomington for years with Tommy Allison and Charlotte Zitlow and other people that see the influence of money and, and sweeping away regulations like that as a pernicious uh, attack on, on basically government using the legislative process to try to control campaign financing. And they, since it's been done on a Supreme Court level, what they see is a need to pass an amendment to the Constitution because once the Supreme Court has clarified it, you really can't pass legislation because Montana uh, had legislation in place that basically limited corporate contributions, and that's been swept away already. Uh, So basically, we've seen just a lot of controls on what corporations and, and the powers that they had to influence uh, swept away, and we feel like it's going to take a constitutional amendment to give that back to the legislature. Okay. And Benjamin? Yeah. I mean, uh, thank you both for the comments. And Kyle, you really clarified a lot of the legislative issues. Um, from my perspective as a citizen activist, I see it somewhat differently than maybe a judicial perspective. I see the central issue that, for example, in the 2008 presidential and congressional campaigns, over $5 billion were spent. Um, Business Week estimates that following Citizens United, there should be about a 20 percent increase. So our current presidential elections will cost, say, $6 billion. Now, to me, right on the face of it, that is not democracy. In other words, what speaks to a robust conception of the formation of a public will, free speech, is that individuals, living individuals, be the primary constituents of the deliberative act. And with that sort of money um, in our elections, we have a massive distortion on the face of it. And I think a lot of citizens agree with that. And we see it in public movements on the right and the left, so not strictly partisan on that level. We see a real um, indignation at the way legislation has been determined by money. And so in that light, I mean, for me, the central takeaway from the Citizens United case is what um, Justice Stevens in the very last sentence of his dissent said. He noticed while American democracy, he noted Notice is too weak of a word. He noted, because it's quite obvious, that while American democracy is imperfect, few outside the majority of this court 
would have thought it f- its flaws include a dearth of corporate money in politics. And I think that's the overwhelming thing we're facing. But just one other comment going back to Buckley. One thing that interests me about the Buckley decision, which I, which I also think was a terrible decision, and, and in reaching the Citizens United um, dis- opinion, the majority said, well, look, we have two lines of precedent. We have the one that undergirded the McCain-Feingold and above all that was Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce. They had that line of precedent and then they had the buckley Belodi line of precedent, which sort of allowed for more – greater corporate influence. And that was part of a political strategy. It can be dated to Justice Powell's Belodi is the case that applies Buckley to corporations. Right. Yeah. Um, and, it, and in that case, it's interesting that after um, Buckley, that John Rawls, I don't know if the audience out there knows John Rawls, but he is the um, basically the 20th century philosopher of justice. And he um, looked at the Buckley decision, and, and I have a, a nice brief quote from him where he simply says um, that the court's decision runs the risk of endorsing the view that fair representation is representation according to the amount of influence effectively exerted. And I think most people's sense of fairness is is scandalized by that. And I think that's the situation we're confronting with Citizens United. It's an outrage or scandalization of the public intuition that deliberation involves individuals, not corporations. Now, yesterday on uh, Fresh Air, Jim Bopp, who's an attorney from Terre Haute and who represented Citizens United in the case that uh, ended up in front of the Supreme Court, made some comments. He also was interviewed by WFIU about a week ago, and we have some of his comments when he did that interview. And we're going to play one now about uh, when he talks about everybody is entitled to free speech, and that doesn't just include individuals, but includes corporations. So... Uh, because the, the, the essential point of Citizens United was you cannot discri- discriminate among speakers. The problem with the law was that it, w- it was discriminating among speakers. It was saying everybody else can speak, but not corporations and labor unions. And when you look at the First Amendment, it protects speech. It says Congress shall na- make no law abridging speech. So whoever can speak... Uh, then is protected by the First Amendment. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a citizen or an illegal alien. It doesn't matter if you're in the country legally or not legally. It doesn't matter uh, if you're a corporation, a partnership, a labor union, a business, whatever you might be. Uh, if you are able to speak, uh, then it protects your speech. And uh, so it seems to me that that same principle would apply to contributions. Because here, again, we have a discrimination among speakers. Everybody else can contribute, but corporations and labor unions can't. And I think the rationale of uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United is that that corporate and labor union ban on contributing would also be declared unconstitutional. All right, Rob Deppert wants to respond to that. The, the funny thing about the way he mentions corporations and labor together, and I am the liaison from Central Indiana Jobs with Justice to Move to Amend, is, is that uh, he kind of equates the two like they have some type of an equal amount of resources to influence elections. And, and as the labor movement has waned basically by successive uh, changes in, in regulations and, and changes in the marketplace, that it's completely untrue. And what was done with the the right to work fight was that uh, massive amounts of money were coordinated by James Bob himself uh, through what was called the Opportunity Fund, which is considered a charitable organization to fund putting Mitch Daniels on air. Basically, every third or fourth commercial, it seemed like to me, of course, I was against what his point was, but... uh, he kind of throws labor and corporations together like they're on an equal playing field. And what is it has actually done is swept away the ability uh, for citizens to have an equal voice with the with the corporate influence out there is the way that we see it. Since this was passed two years ago now, can can any of you speak to what impact it has had? You know, we hear a lot of figures being being tossed around, but really, what's it look like? What if we can talk about pre and then now? Um. Sure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of times people. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I haven't said a bad thing about Citizens United yet, so it might not be coming through that I'm actually against this case, but and, and actually against Buckley. But um, I, I think a lot of people kind of overestimate the importance of Citizens United. I mean, you, you might remember before Citizens United, things were already um, really, really bad, and we actually had. Uh, 
structures these five to seven groups if if people remember those like swift boat veterans for mm-hmm. truth and all that mm-hmm. who arguably could could function almost like these kind of contemporary super PACs do now there was always kind of a kind of a, a legal cloud hanging over them but but things were already really bad um I think maybe the the primary impact of Citizens United is that it it uh, uh, it, it it's uh, clarified the the legitimacy of those tactics. There's no longer a, a legal cloud uh, hanging over those types of groups. We now have we now have uh, uh, this this uh, device called the Super PAC that um, you know that 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 has the official imprimatur. Um, I think uh, I think Citizens United also enables uh, individuals to speak anonymously more easily. Um, before Citizens United, it was still possible for a guy like Sheldon Adelson. People know who I'm mm-hmm. talking about here. This is the guy who's basically independently bankrolling um, uh, Newt Gingrich's campaign through a super PAC. You know, Adelson Adelson could have just funded this individually before Citizens United. And that would have presented all the same inequality concerns that we have today. Uh, the big difference today is that Sheldon Adelson can give all of his money to this, uh, to this super PAC and they kind of have the organization set up and he doesn't have to go and hire his own, uh, his own uh, uh, producers and videographers and, and all these people. He just kind of cuts a check. That's easier for him. And if he wanted to be super secretive about it, he could give money to this device called a 501c4 uh, that can take funds anonymously and then kind of launder the funds through that. And that's something he, he uh, uh, wouldn't have been able to do or, or at least wouldn't, wouldn't so obviously have been able to do before Citizens United. It seems like one could argue, though, that that gives, gives voters more choice. You, you get a candidate like Newt Gingrich who maybe otherwise you wouldn't have. Can I? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there are two thoughts that come up. Um, Especially, I mean, that was a great quote from Bob. I think that goes to the heart of the issue. So I want to take up the question of the principle behind that. But I also want to take up the question of the facts that, that Kyle was adju- uh, addressing because I think that's very important. One of John Paul Stevens' major concerns in that decision was that the courts had corporate um, corporate um, distortion of elections was a trivial problem. And Stevens said there was no remanding of the case at that point to fact-finding. And that's come up again with, this, with the decision from Montana. In other words, what Bader Ginsburg and certain members of the court have said after the stay of, that, of, the, of the state Supreme Court decision was that we need to find out the facts. What are corporations doing? How are they affecting the legislation? Mm-hmm. We have to we – have affecting democracy, affecting um, elections. Um, so that's a that's a clear issue. I mean, I think there are plenty of facts out there. I think the courts have neglected to find those facts in reaching these decisions. But it's, but the second point, and maybe the more important point, I think, is the question of principle. The way James Bob, Jim Bob's argument works, as we heard it very clearly, is this idea: well, it promotes free expression. It, everyone is equal, and the basis of this equality is the Fourteenth Amendment, equal protection, and and it's an appeal to the First Amendment that we're all equally protected. One thing that's really disturbing to me about that is that the entire conception of justice on which the the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were founded was rooted in the tradition of 17th century um, democratic philosophy, which made a clear distinction in the words of John Locke between – when John Locke wrote his treatise on government, he was arguing against Robert Filmer who said, look, the state is given by God. The state has divine right. And, he's, and John Locke's response is no. Individual living flesh and blood people have divine natural right. But the state, our fundamental insight is the state is an artificial creation. Now, when John Marshall, the, the original Supreme Court, reviewed questions of corporations, he emphatically said corporations are artificial creations. So when asserting that corporations are not people, what we're fundamentally saying is that corporations can be regulated. Corporations, we can discriminate between corporations in the name of the public good for precisely the reasons that John Locke set out, why a state alone or any artificial creation can't 
can't claim divine right. Same thing with corporations. We can distinguish between a media corporation and we can distinguish between a non-media corporation. Corporations as artificial creations are in the public trust. We legislate them not according to right but according to the national consensus of what's good. Jim Bopp doesn't get that because he doesn't care. All right. I want to give our phone numbers again so we can uh, make sure and our listeners know they can join us on this conversation. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the web address. I want to address this this issue of anonymity too because I, I do understand the distinction between donating to a candidate and donating to something else or individual expenditures. But anyone who donates to a candidate over a certain level – I think in Monroe County, it might be 50 bucks or 100 bucks mm-hmm. or something, must be named, must be reported. Mm-hmm. So you know who's supporting the candidate. Why, why is there this distinction so that there's anonymity for, for knowing who's supporting this idea or this issue? Well, okay. One thing to point out, Citizens Un- this is one problem that Citizens United didn't create, right? Um, the, the, uh, the anonymity problem. If, if, you donate to, if you donate to a campaign, there are disclosure rules. If you donate to a super PAC, there are disclosure rules. The big problem is that if you donate to this charitable organization called a, a 501c4, which only spends 49% of its funds on political purposes, you don't have to disclose that. And then they can pass your money on and launder it. Now, that's not really, that's not really a problem with Citizens United. That's more a, a regulatory problem. That's a kind of a sort of statutory loophole. Uh, but but that's the source of the problem. So that there. could be that could be fixed without that could definitely still be fixed. now legislatively. Yeah, and, and there's a law called the Disclose Act. Which, yeah, which, yeah, or a, a bill rather. And it was it passed the House before in 2010 before we got the new House, and it died in the Senate. And, and I just think that kind of shows – we, we talked to uh, Congressman Young mm-hmm. yesterday and he said, oh, I favor complete disclosure because we had mentioned the Disclose Act to him. And uh, what was odd to me about that is it, it was the Republican House that also when, when – uh, President Obama wanted to issue an executive order saying that basically anybody that did business with the government had to disclose uh, all these expenditures. The, the, the leadership in the House, the Republican leadership, immediately came and wrote a letter to uh, President Obama and said, you just absolutely can't do that. That'll cause corruption and the world will come to an end. And, and, and Obama backed off of that. Uh, and he had a lot of issues at the time with budget negotiations and everything else. So, in just on the landscape of it, I mean, if you look at it, I think it, the people that are most likely to get this independent expenditures feel emboldened right now. And I think we've seen movements in Ohio to to stamp out or or basically limit uh, collective bargaining rights. And I think you've seen it in Wisconsin. And I think you've seen it obviously here in Indiana. So I I think what it does is it has changed the landscape to a certain extent. It may have only tweaked the laws in certain areas, but it has emboldened people who control a lot of that vast wealth to roll back a lot of rights just through regular legislation. And that that's, to me, what I see as the most pernicious part of uh, what's happened with Citizens United. We're going to take one phone call before we have to take a break. So let's go to Dave. Dave? Yes? Hey, go ahead. Hi, great. Um, there's one thing I've been thinking about, and I wanted to hear what your uh, panel has to say, that whenever you have an organization like a corporation or even the unions, there are a few people who are making the decisions, but actually the money that they control has been gained through a whole number of people, you know, people who work for the corporation, people who buy their products. And it seems to me that by allowing a few people to control the wealth that generates the speech, then you're actually concentrating that power of speech in the hands of a few when it should actually, without it reflecting the views of the many people who may have participated in the making of the money. Reactions? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is actually, this is sort of a a riff that you heard a lot in um, in a lot of the the decisions that Citizens United swept away, that there are legitimate differences in persuasive power. You know, if, if one person's more charismatic or, or, uh, 
or uh, uh, more articulate or, or better looking than, than another person or something like that. That's that's more legitimate. Um, if it's if it's based on wealth, then maybe that deserves a little more examination. And in the case of corporations, their persuasive power, which is kind of uh, indexed to their wealth, doesn't really bear any relationship to the to the power of their ideas or the popularity of their ideas. It bears relationship to something else that's completely disconnected, how much soap they sold or something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a completely legitimate uh, policy concern. Yeah, can I jump in sure. there? Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you bring it up because something you said, Dave, reminded me of an important Supreme Court decision by Justice Louis Brandeis, and Brandeis was um, famous for um, paving the way uh, judicially for a lot of regulations of corporations, the sort of regulations of zoning, the sort of regulations that bring us livable um, cities. And Louis Brandeis very famously said in the, in the 30s that – and I, I read his actual quote – we may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And I think that, that insight of Justice Louis Brandeis is really reflected again in, in the Bellotti case on the other side. <laughs> the insight going the other way that we don't want democracy but we want wealth, handed, uh, wealth concentrated in the hands of the few to – to guide our society, especially in this new age where we're racing to the bottom, we're cutting back collective bargaining rights, we're taking away rights from anyone but corporations. This is a broad legislative agenda, which I identify with American legislative, uh, American executive, ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, excuse me. Um, But Bellotti, what's interesting about Lewis Powell's decision, so that's, as Kyle pointed out, that was the 78 decision applying Buckley to corporations, is that before he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he wrote a famous memorandum to the Virginia Chamber of Commerce. And that memorandum laid out a strategy of defending corporate rights on the basis rather of the 14th Amendment of the First Amendment, so on the basis Mm -hmm. of free speech, precisely the basis of Citizens United. And it's interesting what the title of that memo, memorandum to the Virginia Chamber of Commerce was called. It was called um, Attack on the American Free Enterprise System. In other words, his explicit agenda was increasing corporate power in the legislative context. And we see how that's playing out now on the attack on labor power. The playing field is grossly unequal. It's happening under this cloak of anonymity. It's wealth concentrated in the hands of the few and in the syllogism of Justice Brandeis that's precisely not democracy. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, We're talking about Citizens United and other campaign finance issues. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Sarah Whitmire, Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And we have uh, three guests with us today talking about the Citizens United decision and other campaign finance issues. Kyle Lang- Langvart is the uh, le- is a lecturer in business law and ethics at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Benjamin Robinson is an Occupy Bloomington activist and Rob Deppert, a member of Bloomington's Move to Amend group. If you have questions or comments, and we do have 
two callers who have been very patient, but you can call us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348 or wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to join a live chat. Let's go right to the phones. Richard is next. Richard? Yeah, I just want to get in here. Uh, I think the Citizens United decision was wrong. Corporations are not people. They don't have the right to vote. They aren't guaranteed any rights at all in our Constitution. It's we the people, of the people, by the people. Uh, They are a legal construct of someone's ambition, whether they're one year old or a hundred years old. Uh, They uh, are what they are. They don't have any more rights than my car does. And uh, the only reason I'm able to operate my car on the road is because it's a privilege that I'm granted. And it is if I can do things wrong, I can have it taken away, too. And by granting people the right to have a second voice in our government through their business, they are creating an uneven balance in the form of government we have due to the money involved because... It came out last week that the people who are winning most of these primaries and everything currently right now is people who can spend the most money. Mm-hmm. It's not really about the citizens involved. It's not really about the even the policies and issues involved. It's about who can get the name out there in front of the public and get them to vote for them. And uh, because of that, because it's done so, uh, if they're going to do donations, then they need to be all public. Every donation made needs to be public. And if they're not, then they need to do away with all corporate donations and just let people actually finance the uh, that really throw a real wrench into things, wouldn't it? People all right. actually vote into it. Yep. All right, Richard. Thanks a lot for your call. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to uh, go next to Doug. Doug? Hi there, guys. Hey, Doug. Hey, uh, just a little bit of levity on a serious subject. Um, did anybody there see Bill Moyer's interview with Stephen Colbert? No, I didn't. Uh, wait, whose interview? Uh, well, Bill Moyer's. From, um, no, I haven't seen that. Okay, well, well, I don't mean to speak for... No, I haven't no, seen it. I didn't no, no, tell us about it. <laughs> well, uh, he was interviewed, and he said, I will believe that corporations are individuals when the state of Texas executes one. Oh, I saw that. Brilliant. <laughs> I've seen it on Facebook. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, all right, Doug. Thanks. I, Doug made he made his point very yeah. quickly, very uh, very astutely. Did you have a comment? Well, I oh, okay. So I I feel like it, it's not necessarily going to come through just just how awful I think Citizens United is, and, and I you know I I uh, I'd also like to. Uh, Repeal Buckley through an amendment and all that. That being said, I I do think, and I say this I say this as somebody who thinks the wealth disparities is, is a huge problem. I I think the corporate personhood angle here is is a, a little bit of a, a distraction um, because the fact is if if the Sheldon Adelsons of the world are uh, are uh, exercising their First Amendment rights as as human beings, that's every bit as bad as if they use. Um, uh, a corporation as the instrument to do it. I, I fear that a you know a, a constitutional amendment that said corporations are not people um, would uh, would sort of alienate alienate a lot of a lot of uh, Republicans whose votes we we do need to pass a constitutional amendment without really providing any sort of collateral uh, collateral benefit. Well, well, but can I ask you just, I mean, just very simply, I mean, corporations aren't people. Right. I mean, in, and, and in, the, in the literal sense, they're, they're not. But, you know, and, and I hear people make this argument all the time, and I guess, it is, you know, it is, it's sort of funny when they say when you execute a corporation or when a, when a corporation gets a colonoscopy or something like that, I'll, I'll believe that a, that a corporation is a human being. But, but that just can't possibly be what the, what the court's saying, and it's not what the court's saying. Um, you know, corporations are treated differently already. Uh, direct contributions, direct donations to campaigns by corporations are already uh, prohibited. Um, the the corporate personhood thing is more just a kind of definitional formality. It, it's really a difference without a difference, I would say. Okay, we want to uh, 
play something else that Jim Bob says because we've talked a lot about money being in campaigns, and you guys have talked a lot about how there's way too much money. I believe I'm paraphrasing you correctly. Jim Bob says that more mon- more money needs to be spent on campaigns. The decision about who's elected president uh, means uh, uh, is a very important decision. Uh, the federal budget is 3.5 trillion trillion dollars and uh, the president has a lot of say about how that money is spent. Uh, So when you consider that we're spending just a couple of billion dollars uh, uh, to decide who's going to spend 3.5 trillion dollars and that we spend more money on ice cream, popcorn, and potato chips, any one of those, than we do on elections. Uh, And when you consider that people don't even know who's in office. Uh, they can't, uh, a third of the people can't even tell you who's the vice president of the United States. Uh, most people cannot tell you who their own congressman is. Well, that means we have a woeful shortage of information. And the more money that would be spent, the more information we would have, and then the more informed voters we would have. And then hopefully, the, you know, at least the voters would uh, be able to exercise their choice uh, in, in an uh, informed way. So I think we need more money spent on politics. And if we didn't have the severe contribution limits that are imposed on candidates, if we didn't have a lot of the regulations that we have that stifle people's participation in political activity, we would have more money spent, but that would be a good thing. Well, I certainly feel more informed after Citizens United. I mean, does anybody else agree with that? <laughs> I, 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 uh, yeah, let me, let me jump in on, on, on Kyle's humor there and just say, you know, I think it's a brilliant quote again from Jim Bob that you chose. I mean, it really shows, right, he's putting his values on the table. We should spend more money on elections to make public decisions just as we spend money on potato chips. For Jim Bob in Jim Bob's universe, deciding on the fundamental questions of politi- political liberty are tantamount to choosing between potato chips. In other words, his view of liberty is grievously impoverished, and it's impoverished to the extent that he envisions an electoral system pumped with wealth. The impoverishment is clear. It is not part... Now, this is where I want to jump in on the issue of principle again about corporate personhood. What's at stake, and this I'm drawing a distinction with Kyle here because I think there's a central issue at stake. The question when Andrew Jackson in 1832 brought up the issue of corporations, he said, Look, corporations have life in perpetuity, corporations have limited liability. People don't. People die, people bear their liabilities. Corporations don't. To the extent we provide them privileges, we have the public right to regulate them. If we take those privileges away, if we want to get rid of limited liability, then fine, right? Then we destroy the corporate structure. If we're going to allow limited liability, which allows corporate wealth accumulation, then what we get in return is the right to regulate the corporations. For that reason, it is crucial that we understand corporations are artificial creatures subject to the public good and not living creatures with inherent democratic rights. I absolutely agree with that. Okay. But then just to take that one step further, why corporate personhood is such a central issue coming out of Citizens United is because, as Rob has brought up, there is a very clear legislative agenda. We could call it a post-New Deal legislative agenda, a post-Lochner, Lochner, a post-Lochner, a post-post-Lochner agenda. And that agenda is to take away any sort of regulative power in the name of the public good from the government so corporations can foster their own money-based agenda unimpeded. We hear that clear as a bell in Jim Bob. We hear it clear as a bell coming out of the Citizens United decision. That bell is the bell of danger. It is the calls for the hammer of justice, to quote Pete Seeger there. The hammer of justice has a simple refrain. Money is not speech. Corporations are not people. I didn't know he was going to quote Pete Seeger here today. <laughs> he spent the night at my house when I was a kid right with my father. But uh, the, I think the other thing that we missed, too, is a corporation has one motive, and that's to make a profit. 
And that can be a destructive thing and that can be a good thing. But beyond any controls that, that lets that become destructive, you have to have a democratic process to kind of rein that in. And as far as a corporation being a person, I've incorporated before and all I saw was just a pile of papers <laughs> at that point. So. Right. I feel like I do need to jump in here at this point. I think I think I, I can't speak for Jim Bopp. I would say he's probably much more intelligent than I am. But I think his comment about potato chips was basically to add some context to the argument that, that we spend billions on things like potato chips. No, I, but, but I beg to disagree. It was a fundamental equivalence. We spend money on potato chips. We should, in that exact same analogic sense, spend money on politics. That was the heart of his argument. It was not context. It was the nature and the medium of communication. He does not understand the notion of inherent dignity. Okay. I also want to say we did invite Jim Bopp on this program, and I don't want this to turn into a bashing Jim Bopp hour. Um, we did invite him on. He couldn't accommodate it with his schedule. He's very busy, but we did give him the opportunity, and the reason we want to play his clips is to provide some, mm-hmm. more, s- some more discussion here for the argument. But we do have a call. Bob, should we go ahead and get to our call? Dave is on the line. Dave, yes, go ahead. Hello. Sure. Uh, well, here, here to your guests. I, I think that... Uh, Corporations, yes, they're of course not people, uh, and they should be uh, redefined as uh, as not people. I think that the decision of Santa Clara County versus Union Pacific Railroad in the eighteen, I believe the eighteen eighties, was mm-hmm. the root of this problem. But we, what we've seen is a concentration, growth and concentration of corporate power, not only in politics, but in very almost every sector of the economy is mm-hmm. becoming monopolized, and. For that matter, our media system is captured as well. So if they're if they are if they are people, then they're psychopathic because they have only one uh, aim, and that is to grow and to and to grow grow wealth. Um, but my question is, I'm going to follow this to the next step, and that is that I think it was Mussolini who said that fascism could be understood as corporatism, that is the growth of corporate power in collusion with government essentially depriving the people of rights is essential for fascism to grow. And I would like your guests to respond to this, because this is the danger that we're facing with the growth of corporate power in this country. Thank you. Okay. I have a, yeah, I have a, that's a wonderful question, and I think it, right, it draws exactly the conclusion we need to ask ourselves. And there's a very um, – it's interesting you cite Mussolini because, of course, fascism was coming on the world scene and motivated a lot of the legislation of the New Deal era. And just as before he assumed the presidency, um, Roosevelt gave a wonderful speech to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in 1932. And he, his eyes were squarely on Mussolini as he gave this speech. And again, it's a speech. The Commonwealth Club speech is very important because it sets an agenda, the post-Lochner agenda, that has now been wiped out, again, most significantly by the attack on the NLRB, the National Labor Relations, NLRA, National Labor Relations Act of the Roosevelt era, the attack on it, the destruction of it, basically, we're seeing with Mitch Daniels. But so what did Roosevelt say in 1932? He saw Mussolini, he saw Hitler on the horizon, and he said, and I quote President Roosevelt from the Commonwealth speech in 1932, private economic power is a public trust. Corporations have become great, uncontrolled, and irresponsible units of power within the state, and the growing corporation, like the feudal baron of old, threatens the economic freedoms of individuals to earn a living. So I totally agree with you. Mussolini is a relevant precedent here. Corporations are not individuals. Wealth in the hands of few or democracy. That's the decision facing us today. Okay, I... I have to. I want to say this in a general sense, though. I mean, you're quoting Mussolini. We're invoking Hitler. Um, <laughs> quoting Roosevelt, though, who's yeah, very directly. Roosevelt. It's not a everyone is Hitler you know, sort of thing. It's a, it's okay. directly germane to the power of corporations okay. and to a legislative era that is now going into eclipse. Unfortunately, okay. So, well, well said. But uh, also, the Supreme Court of nine individuals on the Supreme Court made this ruling that we're all talking about today. Um, I'm not naive enough to say that there isn't some politics that goes on with the Supreme Court, but it still is a court of justices who are looking at the law and trying to interpret the law as they believe it. So can you sort of respond to that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Citizens United is a, a, a political decision. It kind of it reverses course 
you know, uh, really, really abruptly. Um, but to to me, what's what's particularly scary about Citizens United is that I, I don't think it's actually an insane implementation of of the First Amendment. I think it's a, it's a reasonable interpretation of the first. I don't think it's the only interpretation of the First Amendment, but I think there's a good faith case to be made that that this is actually what the First Amendment. Um, requires and I, list, I I disagree with uh, with Jim Bopp on all of his policy arguments. I think his policy arguments are pretty bad. I don't think his legal arguments are that bad. And and the conclusion I draw from that is that you know we've got a we've got a constitution that needs um, that that needs some some tweaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's where you come in, right, Rob? Uh, yeah, we'd like it. To, and, and you know, Hoosiers are famous for tweaking the Constitution because we had Birch Bayh actually author two of the latest amendments that were passed, and now Jen Bopp has done this, and then maybe Indiana is the place for the wellspring where we can change the Constitution again, or, or at least I, I hope so. Yeah, the cr- crossroads of America. When they talk about corporate speech, I think the one thing to, it can be used to inform people, and but it can be used to miss inform mm-hmm. people, too. I mean, it, it's got its own motivation. And and when I see that, I know one thing our, our illustrious governor said was that when he described right to work, he said that basically there was some states who have right to work that actually have a greater union membership. And there's, there's a good chance that maybe unions will be more responsive and it'll great, grow the labor movement. And he's the same gentleman that, that basically, with the stroke of the pen, took away all collective bargaining rights for state workers on his first day in office. So, I mean, you kind of look at it all and you and you think about it and, and you, you get a message played over and over again that says one thing, but where does that fit with reality? Mm-hmm. Well, let me give our phone numbers again. We only have about five minutes to go, but you might be able to slide in a call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We do have a caller who's come in so let's just go right to donald donald yes uh, i think it ought to be kept in mind there's a basic principle here and that is that a corporation and i've had a few of them myself a corporation is a legal entity which is constructed according to law it's endowed in its articles of incorporation and by statute with specific powers, and they're all subject to the operation of law. If a power is bestowed on a corporation by law, it surely can be curtailed or regulated by law. And I don't see any mystical or transcendentally instituted powers accruing to a corporation such as those that are bestowed on individual human beings in the Bill of Rights. Uh, basically, I think that a corporation can have no natural rights because it is not a natural entity, only a legal fiction. And that's all I've got to say. Okay. Thanks. Eloquently said. Thank, thank you, Donald. Thank you very much. We have Paul on the line now. Paul? Hello. I have a question. If, if corporations are people, could there be a corporate death penalty <laughs> like uh, union carbide uh, through maybe neglect? Uh, ended the lives of many people, and other corporations through neglect have ended people's lives. Could there be a total forfeiture of corporate assets as a corollary of them being people? I, I don't... Um, yeah, and, and this is... Not all of the rights that extend to ordinary human beings extend to corporations. I mean, corporations still can't vote. and I mean, they can do something better than voting, but they can't, you know, they can't actually go to the booth and vote. And so I, I think uh, there could never be any sort of, any sort of uh, constitutional objection to uh, uh, dissolving a corporation, at least based on like cruel and unusual punishment or something like that. I don't, I don't see any reason why that couldn't take place. But, but, it, it, uh, but here, as in other contexts, I think the question of, of whether we call a corporation a personhood for these kind of limited purposes really has a lot more kind of rhetorical and aesthetic significance than, than practical significance. Can yeah, go just, ahead. Just to jump in again, because I always respond to Kyle on that. <laughs> it's an important one. But it's, it's just to say, right, you know, um, to affirm what the, what the caller was asking and saying, look, you know, the, the, uh, in, under Teddy Roosevelt, we broke up, you know, Standard Oil, that, in other words, there is compelling reason to re- regulate monopoly par- 
powers that are in corporate charters, that this goes back again to the very early history of the Supreme Court, the Charles River Bridge case, and other, which chartered a monopoly power to cross the Charles River, and that was taken away by the state. In other words, there are enormous privileges conferred by corporate charters. And as the previous caller pointed out, with those privileges comes responsibilities. This equation or the obligation to regulate these corporate entities is one that cannot be protected by the inherent rights of the individual. And again, Bob, you asked the question, <coughs> is the court so naive? I do think, you know, it's not naive. It's actually more clever than most people assume. In other words, it is a political entity, the court. And I try and make that point over and over again in, in my own way of discussing it, that we pass through errors. So so a lot of people out there listening to this show might not know what the Lochner era is. It, it doesn't matter that you know – I mean it's great to learn what it is. Uh, let me recommend it. But it's, it doesn't matter that one knows that they're, what the f- full content of it, that is. But to understand that the Supreme Court does respond to political pressures. It does respond to the reality of the social good. That's its job. And we then as the public shouldn't be so naive to think that the Supreme Court is simply going to deci- decide in its inf- infinite wisdom what's best for when we see a decision like this and we understand with great indignation that it's an, a corporate power grab, then we have a responsibility as democratic citizens to say, as, as wise as you might be, we agree with Justice Stevens in his dissent that you, the court majority, are the just about the only people besides Jim Bob who feel the problem is not enough money in politics. All right. We have Patrick on the line. Patrick, we only have about a minute to go. Can you be quick? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm just wondering, I have a question. How did we get from John Locke's and uh, Justin Marshall, Justice Marshall's concept of the uh, corporation to this idea of uh, corporate personhood? I don't know that we can answer that in the next 30 seconds, but, but we'll take that as it. Well, go ahead. I mean, it, it's actually not that far of a leap if, if, if you don't take it you know, literally, which I think too many people are doing. I mean, corporation, it comes from corpus. It's like a body. You're trying to, to, to take this, this organization and embody it as if it were a person. I mean, I, w- I would say corporate personhood is almost the, the definition Oh, of but let me jump in there. Actually, <laughs> with John Locke, he really speaks directly to the ideas of corporation as a medieval, as a medieval notion of life in perpetuity and the danger of understanding the state or artificial entities in terms of that medieval sense of corporation and the, and the body, the, the immortal body of the corporation. All right. so. Benjamin Robinson, thank you for, for that, <laughs> ending our show. Uh, Kyle Langvart and uh, Rob Deppert have also been great guests today. Sarah Whitmire didn't get to say very much, but We Sarah, had great guests and great callers. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Sarah. Thank you, Bob. Uh, producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw have helped out a great deal as has engineer Mike Pashkash on Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho. 333-1933 online at mypremierortho.com.